Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 88, Contamination, on several examples of environmental contamination in the 1980s. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. If you thought that chemistry, now recognizing the problems of pollution in the environment, was free and easy in the 1980s, guess again. We will examine some severe environmental contamination examples in this episode. The first problem we talk about dates back to the Vietnam War in the 1960s and defoliant Agent Orange, or, as it is chemically known, 2,4,5-trichlorophenoxyacetic acid, or in brief, 2,4,5-T. We talked about this example of chemical warfare some episodes back. The chemical manufacturer, Hoffman Taff, was producing Agent Orange in Verona, Missouri, for the American military. By 1969, the Hoffman Taff firm rented out sections of the plant to another company, Northeastern Pharmaceutical and Chemical Company, to make hexachlorophene. Hexachlorophene is an organic compound with two joined benzene rings and eight chlorine atoms with antibacterial and antifungal properties, and some of us may remember, as I do, a solution often found in doctor's offices called Physohex, which contained it. As a kid, I remember a light green bottle near my pediatrician's sink with Physohex. Anyway, Eventually, the Hoffman Taff Company was sold to Syntex, which we also heard about with their groundbreaking hormone production in the 1940s and 1950s. But in the meantime, if you recall, Agent Orange has a byproduct during manufacture which is even scarier than Agent Orange itself, that is, a particular form of the chemical family of dioxins. Hoffman Taff stored much of their dioxin in Verona on the plant site in metal waste tanks. To get rid of all this toxic dioxin at a cheap price, Syntex hired a company in the early 1970s called Russell Bliss. Bliss took six truckloads of dioxin and mixed it with waste oil in the town of Frontenac. Unbelievably, the Bliss company then used the mixture in over 25 different places in Missouri to stop excessive dust, mostly on horse paths and dirt roads. One of the places they sprayed with the oil plus dioxin was a town called Times Beach in eastern Missouri, not too far from the Mississippi River, with about 2,000 residents. Times Beach couldn't afford paved roads, so the oil as dust suppressant seemed like a cheaper, reasonable alternative. Of course, this bizarre course generated consequences. By late May 1971, 
One site, Shenandoah Stables, had 40 horses die from the spray, along with other small animals like cats, dogs, and even birds. Then the owner of the stables had a six year old daughter fall ill. The owners suspected the oil and removed a total of 46 centimeters of dirt. Bliss denied any wrongdoing. This brought in the Missouri Department of Health and the United States CDC. The CDC researched the problem for several years and figured out by July 1974 that the dioxin in the dust suppressant was to blame. This meant that the government now had to find the many sites where the mixture was used. And by this time, hexachlorophene was banned by the Food and Drug Administration, so Northeastern Pharmaceutical went out of business. In the meantime, recall that the Superfund Act was in place by 1980 as a response to the Love Canal disaster in New York State. The Superfund laws state that the U.S. government may take both short term and long term remediations. This meant that the Environmental Protection Agency got involved. By late winter 1982, the EPA received results from the CDC on various Missouri sites that were contaminated with dioxin. Throughout the year, the EPA started to sample for dioxin in the soil. Including in Times Beach. By December 1982, there were huge floods in the area around Times Beach, evacuating residents, and the CDC and EPA recommended that all inhabitants not be allowed to return because the dioxin levels were so high, in fact, 300 times safe levels. Three months later, On February 22, 1983, the federal government decided to buy out the entire town of Times Beach and relocate everyone, all 800 properties and 300 businesses. Money came from Superfund laws. Over the course of the 1980s, multiple lawsuits against Russell Bliss, Northeastern Pharmaceutical, Independent Petrochemical, and Syntex. Were filed, and a consent decree was issued by 1990. The decree stated that the EPA would remove the polluted dirt from the various Missouri spots to Times Beach, where all the soil would be incinerated. This was no problem, for all residents had left some years earlier. The companies would remove their plant, create a levee to protect against floods, build the incinerator, and restore Times Beach. The process took six years, and incineration began in 1996. Over a full year, more than 265,000 tons of stuff was burnt up there. The entire town of Times Beach, including 37,000 tons of material, was incinerated and buried in a so called town mound. A state park was opened there three years later. And the park was removed from the Superfund list by 2001. We now move halfway around the world to India. Back in the 1950s to 1970s, 
the government wanted to promote foreign investment and got an agreement with Union Carbide Corporation. Union Carbide built a pesticide plant to manufacture a chemical called Seven, S E V I N, which is a trade name for the compound 1 naphthyl methyl carbamate, an organic compound with two fused benzene rings. Part of the agreement with Union Carbide was to include local stakeholders, and even the Indian government held 22% ownership in the company's subsidiary, Union Carbide India Limited. The Seven plant was built in the city of Bhopal, with nearly a million people in an area zoned for light industry, not heavy or hazardous manufacturing. Instead of synthesizing seven from basic raw materials, the plant was supposed to be using intermediates to make seven. Seven itself is a popular insecticide, especially in Asia, and the plant opened in 1969. Well, the subsidiary got a lot of pressure financially and decided to start the manufacture of seven from raw materials. Which is significantly more hazardous. By 1984, the factory was operating at one quarter capacity, but there were crop failures, so that farmers had no money to buy seven. Therefore, the local managers had to close the plant in Bhopal and prepare the facilities to be sold. No buyer came forward, so the local managers began planning to ship main production assets elsewhere. While the plant was still operating with lower safety standards, the government knew of these sloppy standards, but feared serious economic hardship in the area. Late at night, about 11 p.m. on December 2, 1984, a plant operator found a small leak of methyl isocyanate gas, plus a storage tank with higher than normal pressure. There was supposed to be a scrubber unit to clean the toxic gases, but it was shut off three weeks earlier. A bad valve let nearly 1,000 kilograms of water mix with the methyl isocyanate. When the two chemicals mix, the solution gives off much heat. Not only that, but an industrial refrigerator to cool the tank of methyl isocyanate was out of commission, and even more. A safety system that lets off flares of gas to reduce pressure was broken for three months. These problems all converged together to allow heat and pressure to build. After three hours of this, the safety valve blew open and let loose a cloud of methyl isocyanate gas, dozens of tons of it, into the town at 1 a.m. About 3,800 people died fast. And there were dead cows, dogs, birds, and buffaloes everywhere in Bhopal. Hospitals took in the injured survivors, but the doctors were unaware of what the gas was. Ultimately, at least 10,000 people died from the gas within a few days, plus up to 20,000 people who were sickened and died early in the next 20 years. This made Bhopal the largest chemical disaster of the 20th century. Over half a million people had some exposure to methyl isocyanate, and wouldn't you know it? 
just like General Motors, Chiso, Showa Denko, and other companies, Union Carbide deflected and gaslit. It blamed everything on the Indian subsidiary, though it owned 50.9% of the Indian subsidiary. It claimed that extremist Sikhs were sabotaging things. Safety audits of the plant by Union Carbide's Danbury, Connecticut office in the years just before the explosion showed substandard conditions there. After lawsuits and legal actions, Union Carbide eventually accepted responsibility morally and paid only $470 million to India. Because the lawsuits were all shifted to India, Union Carbide didn't have to pay $10 billion more than it's worth. Bhopal Medical Appeal says that the site was never cleaned up properly. There is ongoing toxicology testing, finding that people since then have more medical problems. While the Love Canal problems tainted the chemical industry permanently, the Bhopal disaster started activists into demanding for right-to-know laws so local populations can understand about hazardous chemicals and manufacturing procedures. Let's look at the third and final chemical contamination disaster, that of the Chernobyl nuclear reactor in 1986. Chernobyl was a small town of maybe 14,000 people, 130 kilometers north of Kiev, in Ukraine, not too far from Belarus. At the time of our chemical history, the area was part of the Soviet Union. A nuclear power plant composed of four reactors was built in stages. The first two reactors were built in the 1970s, and two more were built in the early 1980s. Another pair of reactors was under construction. Cooling water was drawn from the Pripyat River nearby. This chemical history is not about nuclear plants, so I only briefly describe this reactor. It was an RBMK-1000 version, using 2% uranium-235 in the form of uranium dioxide. Heat from the reactors boils water, and it drove 500 megawatt turbines. But let's talk about the famous accident. On April 25, 1986, the team at Reactor 4 were getting ready to test the system to see how long the turbines might spin and generate electricity to the circulating water pumps if the main electrical power failed. The operators disabled the automatic shutdown systems leaving the reactor unstable. The design meant that as the control rods were sent into the reactor, they caused a power surge. The fuel was hot and collided with cool water, fracturing the fuel rods, making a lot of steam. From the ideal gas laws, we know that extra steam means extra pressure. So much pressure that the cover plate of the reactor weighing a thousand tons came loose. This cracked the fuel channels and froze the control rods only halfway in. Steam entered the entire reactor core from excess water because the cooling circuit broke. 
the steam exploded the reactor and threw radioactive reactor parts and materials up into the air. A few seconds later, another explosion, possibly from hydrogen gas, synthesized from zirconium and steam reactions, tossed more fuel fragments and graphite into the atmosphere. The hot graphite, which is pure carbon, reacted with oxygen in the air, burned, and caused fires in the forested surroundings. Overall, 14 times 10 to the 18th becquerels of radioactivity was released in the catastrophe. It took 10 days of dumping sand, clay, lead, boron, and dolomite onto the core to control the flames and radioactive releases. So, to our contamination, which was the largest uncontrolled release of radioactivity in civilian usage. Among the radioactive elements emitted were iodine-131, cesium-137, and xenon gas. The iodine-131 has a half-life of 8 days, while the cesium-137 has a half-life of 30 years. The bulk of the contamination was nearby debris and dust, but lighter particles traveled by winds to Ukraine, Belarus, Russia, and Northern Europe, especially Scandinavia and Britain. And like corporations we've mentioned who polluted the environment, the Soviet government did the same cover-ups and gaslighting. The first news in the West that something was amiss was two days later when nuclear workers in Sweden found radioactive particles on their clothing before even entering their own facility. Around 200,000 people were commandeered to help contain things, and they received high doses of radiation. There were also significant amounts of low-level radiation in the area and coming from the dispersed particles all over Europe. How did that travel to people? Particles get dispersed over surfaces, including soil and water. The water mostly runs off into rivers and lakes, where plants take up the particles, animals eat the plants, and we eat both plants and animals. Simultaneously, the cloud of dust blown by the wind is deposited on far-flung fields, taken into plants and then into animals, where we eat both. We can also inhale the radioactive particles. They can stick to our skin and irradiate us. And even just standing in a contaminated field can give us a dosage of radiation. The entire area around Chernobyl was declared off-limits to people and is now a ghost town. Four square kilometers of forest just downwind of the reactor died. I lived in England during the disaster and recall news reports telling people not to drink milk. The reason is that radioactive dust fell on dairy areas in the UK, cows ate the dust, and radioactive atoms were incorporated into the milk. Specifically, people were worried about iodine-131 with a short half-life but very volatile and can be incorporated into thyroid glands and milk glands in cows. Cesium-134 and cesium-137 have half-lives of 2 years and 30 years, which pose a much longer-term threat. Cesium accumulates in one's heart. Then there is strontium-90. 
Strontium is under calcium in the periodic table, so its chemical reactivity mimics calcium to a degree. Therefore, strontium-90, with a half-life of 29 years, accumulates in bones and could be a problem for bone marrow, cancers, and one's immune system. Currently, there is an exclusion zone of 2,600 square kilometers around the damaged nuclear facility. After decades of neglect and little human activity, wildlife and forests have grown there. How long will it take to become safe again? The Ukrainian government estimates 320 years, but other sources suggest several thousand years or more. Beyond the human and environmental tragedy, the Chernobyl disaster turned much public opinion against nuclear power as a safe energy source for civilization. Many countries began canceling construction of nuclear plants. With worries about long-term clean energy sources growing, the loss of nuclear power plants magnifies the debate as to where to generate enough electricity. In our next episode, we talk about the chemistry of things that aren't. Examples of pseudoscience in the chemical world. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.